Welcome to the Coop Tank. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And I have to tell you something, people. When I first moved back from L.A. five years ago, my friend Cindy Garnick got me a job interviewing people for an app called Walk My Mind. And one of the people I interviewed is my guest today. And I knew he was an eagle. But I had been gone for so long, I didn't know how much other stuff he does. He's an he's a entrepreneur. He does a podcast. He does TV announcing. He's just he does a lot of stuff going on. And my guest is Ken Dunnick. How you doing, Ken? Hey, Steve. How are you? Good I'm to be doing. here. I got to ask you something. Now I'm a huge Eagles fan. You know, when I was five or six, my parents took me from Cherry Hill to Northeast Philly. I'd sit in the kitchen. My uncle would drink his Iron City and do a shot. <laughs> and I'm a huge fan. And you're an ex-player, so you you're one of we say one of the select alums because a lot of people never got a chance to play what is it like for you when you see them go six and oh i mean it's being that you know what a locker room is you play with a great coach what yeah. is that like for you like in the beginning of the season do you get like goosebumps when you oh, watch them it's really exciting i mean i'm a fan just like everybody else now uh it's funny i'm from chicago and i root for all the chicago teams except for the eagles i root for the eagles and not the bears uh but yeah, I mean, you know, getting access to the team like I do from time to time, I really don't take that much advantage of it, but I do go there occasionally, and uh, it's it's fun. Uh, met Nick Sirianni; he's as nice a person as you would think, uh, and uh, the the team they they seem like really good guys that enjoy each other. And I was a little concerned about training camp because uh, you know I'm I'm old school. I played for Dick Vermeil. We used to knock the hell out of each other in training camp. These guys don't do that anymore. So when I saw their camp, I'm like, well, they're really going to be ready to play football when you know you pump it up to full speed. But obviously they're ready. They're they're an elite team. They filled a lot of holes, and they've got some talent on the squad. Would not surprise me at all to see them make a deep run in the playoffs this year. I hope. They won the Super Bowl when I moved back from L.A., and it was wonderful. But your, that, you did it. I know. You, I, was, yeah, I said, I, said yeah. I did it. It was, right. you know, it was yeah. so funny, and I tell people, living in L.A., I lived in Burbank, and I would walk to a bar. I had an Eagles bar that we five of us would meet at 10 in the morning. And when I walk back, they always have Cowboy fans and, and, and Giants fans, and even Redskins, well, Commodores now, Redskins yeah. fans back then, yelling, Philly sucks, you didn't win the Super Bowl. And I was so I was so glad I was back here for it. But I would have so loved just to be in L.A. and walked around the bar and give yeah. everyone the finger. No, it's funny. You said Commodores. It's actually the Commanders. <laughs> I but I always tease my friend who's a Washington fan. I call him the Lionel Richie and the Commodores. Now, you, you mentioned Dick Vermeil. I know, I know you went to his uh, Hall of Fame induction. What is that like? I mean, I mean, just he's such an amazing man. And I want to talk more about him and how I think if he had guided you for some of the stuff you've gone through, you know, you've started. But what was it like seeing, you know, I guess he's the ultimate mentor, see him get that lifetime achievement at the Hall of Fame? Well, other than my father, he's been the greatest male influence on my life. Uh, he, he gave me a break. Uh, you know, people uh, tend to forget because it's so long ago. I did not play high school football. I was a basketball player. I went to Memphis State and uh, had not played it down to high school or college football. And I was throwing the football outside the athletic dorm one day, and a coach saw me and convinced me to run a 40. And I was 6'6", 235 at that time, ran a 4'6", and. Uh, obviously, I got on the radar, played for Memphis State, got uh, recognized by the NFL, and one of the teams was the Eagles who offered me a contract. I picked the Eagles because I thought they were the best team at the time, and it really I thought it would look better to be cut from the best team. If the Saints <laughs> signed me and cut me, I was out the door before my career started. But, you know, uh, I got there, and they bring in all the free agents, and it's kind of a meat market scenario. But I remember Coach Vermeil would take five minutes with, with, uh, with every uh, player, 
and just talk about, you know, what they expect of you. And he brought me in the room and he talked to me for 20 to 30 minutes. And he instilled the belief in me that uh, he thought I could make the team, which kind of made me think that I could make the team. And I got lucky uh, my rookie year. Uh, John Spagnuolo and Keith Crefley were the top two tight ends. They got hurt in preseason, so I got to start a couple preseason games, caught three passes, played well enough for th- them to keep me. I started the, the uh, that 80 season on injured reserve. I got activated midway through the year, then got hurt again and went back on injured reserve for the Super Bowl. But, uh, you know, just to be there uh, in that environment was surreal to me. I got an NFC championship ring from my experience there and, and a lifelong relationship with one of the greatest men you'll ever know. And I was, I had been pushing uh, through some local reporters like Sal Palantonio and Paul Domowicz, uh to, to say, let's see if we can get him honored. You know, he's 85 years old. Let's get him in while he can still appreciate it. And, and, and we did. We were successful. And it's a most deserving uh, achievement for a great man. It's just amazing that he wasn't already in. You know, you think about I it, I mean, the, the Rams, and then he went to the Chiefs. But, you know, he, he won a Super Bowl with the Rams. He took the Eagles to the Super Bowl. And you're like, who doesn't know who Dick Vermeil is? If you're a football fan, everybody knows the name Dick Vermeil. Well, he's the greatest example of what a Hall of Famer should be. But the knock against him was his overall record isn't superior as compared to some other coaches. What they didn't realize is he took two reclamation projects in the Eagles and the Rams and actually took over the Chiefs at the end and turned them into playoff teams and obviously Super Bowl teams with the Eagles and Rams. They won the Super Bowl. So uh, I think when you factor all that in and the fact that he's given his life to football and been a shining example of everything a Hall of Famer should be, I think it was totally appropriate that he get in this year. Now, as a young football player, when you were young, what is it like when you end up on injured reserve? Do you, I mean, do you, you're, you have to stay positive, but you know, it's once again, it's such a competitive field. And yeah, as I said, you're, you, you know, it's great for you because you are NFL alumni, and yeah. as an Eagles fan, you're an Eagle. But what is it like when you sit there and you get hurt? Does it just, how do you stay focused because you're thinking, well, I got hurt. Someone else, Crepley and Spagnola got hurt, so I jumped in, so someone's coming for me. How do you deal with that? Well, it's true. I think the the modern-day uh, practice squad is the equivalent of what injured reserve was back then. Uh, and practice squad uh, guys uh, today, they like them. They want to keep them. They don't necessarily uh, need them on the 53-man roster, uh, and they get uh, a reduced pay. Back then, on injured reserve, we got our full pay. So the pay wasn't it was minuscule compared to what these guys are making now. But but it was a job, and you know, for me, being a young player with limited football experience, it meant it meant everything to me because I got to practice with the team. Uh, you know, I got to improve my skills to the point where they activated me midway through the season. I started the game against Atlanta at the Vet, and uh, it, it, it was it was thrilling. Uh, but I, I do believe that uh, uh, injured reserve for me gave me the chance to improve enough to where I went on to a pretty successful career in the USFL after my NFL days were over. So uh, I was able to, to play pro football for parts of six years, which is pretty special. How crappy was the turf at the vet? It was the worst, but it was the greatest home field advantage there could be. <laughs> Number one, it was as hard as this table where we're, we're sitting at right now. And they had little seams where the bases were. So you would actually, and the turf would grab your shoe. So you would trip over these seams 
that are right in the middle of the field. And it was uh, there was very little padding on it. Uh, but the great thing about the vet is uh, teams hated to come here, and we knew it. I mean, the fans were you know, excited, uh, yelling obscenities at the team, and they had to come to a field they didn't necessarily like. And a lot of times the weather was bad because it was November, December games. So uh, people talk about the, the, the playing field at the vet. It was bad, but it was great because it was our field and we had the advantage. Now, when your career ends, you know, as you said, you're a guy from Chicago. You know, which I'll tell you, I went to Chicago for my wedding anniversary last year, and I'll put the hot beef, Italian beef, up against a cheesesteak. I don't want people to get pissed at me, but they're uh, they're it's pretty good. I ate the beef. Yeah. I went to my wife. I went, Joanne, this this is a damn good sandwich. Did you dip the sandwich? You yeah, I did. I did, I did a dip. Yeah, I did a single dip. The yeah. lady next to me yeah. had double dip. Oh, I'm yeah. like, how do you eat that? Yes, yeah, falls apart. So you're a Chicago guy. You're yeah. a Midwest guy. You know, and I always compare. You know, I've lived in San Diego. I lived in, outside New York. I lived in L.A. And I always compare. You know, like Chicago, we say is like an East Coast city. You know, it's got that the edge, the coldness. Yeah. Why did you go back to Chicago when you were done done your career here? What what made you stay in the Philadelphia area? Well, I met an Italian girl, and her father told me it was in my best <laughs> interest to stay. So I had read, I read The Godfather. I knew it was for... No, no, seriously, I met my wife, Terry, actually in 1981. Dennis Harrison, Bigfoot Harrison, was on the Merrill Reese show, and he asked me to come with him. So uh, I, I went to the radio show and happened to be at a place called H.T. McDougal's, which is down in Deptford. It's actually the, the, the Adelphia now. So you're, you're laughing. You probably have some memories about that place back in the day. I, I was just talking to someone because, you know, in, in, I grew up in Cherry Hill, and there was, you know, there was Daltz, and there was uh, Copperfields, and yeah. there was the coastline, of course. And, and I remember H. I just I forgot about that, and I was— Watching, I was at Chickie and Pete's in Marlton having yep. a beer, watching a college football game. Started talking to this couple, and H.T. McDougal's came up, and yeah. I'd forgotten about it, and I went, oh, my God. I didn't know that was where Adelphi was. Yes. So um, uh, my uh, Terry was the manager of the restaurant and very attractive girl. And, you know, I was, I was feeling my oats as, a, as an eagle at that time. And uh, I asked the waitress if she would come over. I'd like to talk with her. And she declined. And I said, well, I just wanted to say hello. And she said, well, she's too busy to come over. I said, well, do me a favor. Tell her I'm going to come back every day uh, this week until she says hello to me, right? So I went back the next day. She wasn't there. And I lived kind of right around the corner, so it wasn't uh, a big imposition. And the next day she was there, and she told the waitress, she goes, I'm going to sit with this guy for five minutes. I want you to come get me because I have a lot of work to do. Well, the five minutes turned into 40-plus years, so so here we are. And uh, great, she's a great girl, and uh, we have four daughters together, and uh, made me stay in the area. And, and I love Philadelphia and South Jersey, so I'm glad I stayed. I've met your daughter, Ashley. She's a great person. Uh, you see, you're, you're a good father. You're a family man. Um, you're very respected in the community. Did Dick Vermeil install any of that in you? Because I would think he was someone that would sit there and you would go, I, I want to be like Dick because everyone loves Dick Vermeil. I just can't believe he's 85 because he looks he's like he's the 70. most vibrant 85 oh, that's that there could ever be. No, no, I I do believe that uh, two things I took away from Dick Vermeil were work ethic and uh, character. Dick surrounded himself with people who weren't necessarily the best football players, but uh, had great character, and I think um, that's one of the reasons why. Uh, He's so respected. You know, back then, um, he, was a, he was a movie star. He was a handsome guy, L.A. guy. We would fly to these cities, and there would be women lined uh, at the hotel entrance 
for him. It wasn't for us, the players. It was for him, right? And I used to watch him, and he would put his head down. He was solely focused on Eagles football, would never uh, exchange glances with these women. And they were, like, th throwing keys at it. It was crazy. <laughs> and he would just w walk right by and never acknowledge that. And that, that really taught me something about, you know, a guy who, you know, on the road could probably have taken advantage of a situation that nobody would ever know about, and he didn't do it. And... Uh, so from that uh, standpoint, he certainly has been a great example for me. Now, after your career, you're in South Jersey. Mm -hmm. What do you start to do? I mean, where do you get, what brings you to Jersey Man and Philly Man and your cigar, cigar club and, and your mm -hmm. Birds podcast? I know you've done some TV announcing. Right. What are you doing right after, because you're a young guy, you played for six years, six years, you're 28, 29. Yep. You know, you have your whole life ahead of you. Mm -hmm. You have... Somewhat personality, I mean, uh, you know, celebrity, anyone who's an eagle, they know that. But where, where do you start attacking? What do you think your future is when you're done football, when you know I got to hang I gotta hang the cleats up? Well, um, what happened was uh, the Stars, uh, playing for them for three years, and we won two championships with that team. The Stars and the Eagles would have been a great game back then, by the way. But I had just signed a three-year deal for 335000 which is pretty big money back then. And the league uh, folded and went bankrupt. So I was offered uh, 65000 a year to play for the Steelers. And at that point, I had just turned 30. I didn't really want to go backwards and play for a little bit of money. I thought I had earned my place in the game. So uh, for me, the decision to, uh, to end football was a fairly easy one. I, you know, I was, I'd gotten way more out of it than I ever thought I would. I was relatively healthy. Uh, so um, we, I decided to go into private business, and my father was a printer. So I had uh, knowledge of printing terminology and paper. And Miles Tannenbaum, the star's owner, gave me an interview with Irv Kozlov. The Kozlov family used to own the 76ers back in the Will Chamberlain days, and they owned a company called Roosevelt Paper. And, um, and I went to work for them as an outside sales rep covering uh, the territory of North Jersey. I would drive from here up to Princeton and all the way up to Mawa and back. Uh, I had a, a route to uh, call on printers, magazines, newspapers. Um, and I did that for with uh, several companies for almost 30 years. I had a journalism degree, had a broadcast journalism degree. Didn't get a chance to use it a whole lot. I did some Temple football back in the Bruce Arians days with Harry Donahue and then um, was solely focused on my paper business, and then I have, had the opportunity about 10 years ago to go back with Fox and ESPN and do some college games. So I got to fulfill that end of it. And uh, so from the paper to the printers, and because of my journalism background, um, I wrote a book. Uh, my wife, Terry, was injured in a, in a car accident uh, in 2008, and I was home alone a lot and worried about her. So I used to do public speaking, and people would say, you know, you get a lot of great stories. You should write a book. So I had nothing to do at night, so I sat home and wrote a book. Sent it to a publisher. It gets published. A local magazine, a magazine writer reads the book and likes it and does a story on it. And then he appro actually approaches me with the idea of first doing a publishing company because the you know, publisher, it's very difficult to get a book published, and some publishers take advantage of the author, authors. Then he came to me and said, you know, there's no men's magazine in the area. You know, you, you've got paper printing connections, I've, you know, editorial. Um, wh why don't we look at that? So we did. We started a little company uh, called New Opportunity Publishing, 
and put out a, a very thin magazine compared to what it is now. I think it was the first issue was only 32 or 40 pages. Had Merrill Reese on the cover, got to uh, use my Eagles connections. And people seemed to like it. And uh, it was funny because we were getting into the magazine business when people were getting out. And I didn't know why. <laughs> I quickly found out that it's very difficult to sell magazine uh, advertising. Um, but... Um, we went forward, and we're you know kind of muddling along, breaking even, losing a little bit of money for a couple of years, until we decided that uh, you have to be more than a magazine to make it in that business. You just have to develop other streams of income. So we would hold parties for our advertisers and invite guests to try to get them to buy print advertising. Parties were small, thirty to fifty people. And I would invite potential advertisers, and they would come back to me and say, listen, we, we love these parties, but my company just won't print advertise. But we want to keep coming. We, we like the group. So uh, at that point, I hired my daughter, Ashley, and we decided to, instead of selling tickets to the events, we would create a private club called the Legacy Club, which is really a way for non-advertisers to be able to attend these private parties. Well, it was an immediate success. I think we signed up 100 members the first year. And uh, th that income that was derived from those annual fees offset the losses of the magazine. So now the Legacy Club is the biggest uh, revenue producer that we have uh, in our group. From that was spawned the Chairman's Club, which is a, a five-figure investment. It's uh, a, a C-level Tell me group. more about that when you say five-figure investment. So it's, uh, it's a 10000 and up. Or tell me, and who do you gauge to get in that and how many yeah. people are in it's it? It's C-level business owners and C-level executives, and it's uh, business specific. So there's one banker, one lawyer, one accountant. And at this point, I believe we have 18 or 19 members now in the Chairman's Club, and we do special things for them, like take them to the uh, Eagles uh, uh, suites or Sixers suites for games, fancy dinners and infomercial breakfast. They also get a full-page ad in the magazine. But the big thing they like is when they come to a Jersey Man event, uh, they get introduced to the crowd. So they get that face recognition that people know that Peter Cordo is the accountant or Rob Curley is the banker that's associated with us. So, um, And to them, uh, it's worth the investment. So between Legacy Club, Chairman's Club, and then we have a gala coming up on November 3rd that I hope we can talk about a little bit. Um, we give a lot of the money that is derived from those sponsorships back to the charities. We honor six men and women of the year candidates, and they all represent a, ch a charity. And then uh, the person who uh, is responsible for the most ticket sales wins a big chunk of money for their particular charity. So uh, we're looking forward to a big, a big night. Uh, Dick Vermeil is going to be there, by the way, this year. We're looking forward to that. That's the unmasking, right? Yes. Okay, so tell me more about that. I know Susie Protowski is yes. one of the I, – yeah. I met her at a networking thing once. I know she's one of the – uh, one of the six nominees. Who, who are the other five nominees? Uh, off the top of my head, I would uh, have to uh, refer to my daughter. I know Jane Sacchetti, uh, Rob Worley from Republic Bank, uh, Senator Troy Singleton is one of the nominees. Um, and I'm uh, drawing a blank on the other two. I'll, I'll think of it. But uh, uh, it's a ballroom of the Ben. Uh, that holds 1,100 people. Last year, in the middle of a pandemic, we had 300 people, and this year we're hoping for four or 500. And uh, we we think it'll be a great night for charity. And as I said, Coach Vermeil has agreed to come this year. He'll be giving away a wine experience and 
you know, it's just a, it's a fun night. And, and by the way, we didn't realize this when we set the date. It is the night of the Thursday Night Eagles game, so we will have a big screen showing the <laughs> Eagles right after the announcements are over so people don't run out of there. Now, I want to get back to the, when you first started the magazine. When you're starting a men's magazine, what do you focus on? Because, you know, there's all I, – I grew up – you know, I, I, I read Esquire, okay? I don't read Maxim. You know, I mean, there's, you know, there's Esquire, there's Mac. Yeah. You know, I always say Maxim's for guys who, you know, were afraid to get Playboy. But Playboy, on the other side, though, Playboy had some of the best writers. Oh, I mean, absolutely. The thing is, but so when you started your magazine, because it's been gone for a while, what, do you fo- what did you focus on back then? What did you sit there and say, okay, we need some, we need people to read this yeah. and keep people captivated because there's so much else they can read? Yeah, um, I, I think that uh, from a content standpoint, we always we saw a niche in the marketplace that wasn't being filled. So we created a magazine for men, but not exclusive of women. It was very important for me with a wife and four daughters that there would not be anything in the magazine that they would be embarrassed to look at or read. So uh, there's no profanity, there's no nudity in the magazine. And when you look, when you think about it, you know, women are business people. They like wine. They like fine dining. They're Eagles fans. Everything that's in the magazine would be of interest to women. And so, uh, but the tough part for us to get around as a business was when there were women decision makers that were uh, had a control of the purse strings. And when they looked at the man thing, they got turned off. So one of the greatest examples I can, I can give you was there was a woman who ran a local bank. And I I approached her with the idea, and she dismissed it. She goes, no, we're a family bank. We're not interested in that. I said, well, listen, here's a copy of the magazine. Maybe read it over the weekend. I'll call you on Monday. She read the magazine over the weekend, and I called her. She goes, you know, the magazine's really good. It's much better than I thought. Uh, She goes, when's your next party? I said, well, it happens to be tonight at Parks Casino. Would you like to be my guest? She goes, who's going to be there? I rattled off a few names of people that I knew that she knew. And she says, you know what? I'm going to come. She comes that night, and I barely talked to her because I was so busy. She, my phone rings at 8 o'clock in the next morning. She goes, you were right. I was wrong. We're going to do this, 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 and this. And to me, that, that's a great story of a, 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 a competent businesswoman who took an unobjective look at something that she really didn't know about and, you know, did the research and made the decision that it was right for her. And they've been great, you know, clients for years. Now, there's Philly Man and there's Jersey Man. Is there any difference between them? Some slight uh, advertising differences because of uh, some people can't do business across the river, but for the most part, it's the same magazine. We just we were looking to expand at some point, and instead of going to North Jersey, which would mean we'd have to write about the Giants right. and the Yankees and everything, we didn't want to add that much editorial expense. So we just crossed the river to Philly Man, and we, we bounce our events back and forth and you know, send out the magazines to each side of the river. It's been good. Now, you also have branched down to Miami, right? Well, we started a franchise company. Okay, how, uh, how, what made you do that? USA Man. Well, it was going so well here, we just figured, you know, it might work in other markets. So we hired a consultant and uh, started a franchise company. I have three partners in that franchise company. And we sold Boston right away. So there's a Boston man that's owned by a group, Matt Roboto, up there. And he runs the events, does, has a beautiful magazine, throws great parties. And then uh, about a year and a half ago, we were approached by a group in Miami. And we sold them the rights to Miami. 
and it just became evident early on that it really wasn't a great fit. They weren't kind of following the game plan as you have to do legally with franchise businesses. So instead of, you know, having people waste their club membership money, we made them an offer to buy it back, and we did. And so my daughter and I run that. From here now, we go down to Lauderdale in Miami uh, once a month for three or four days, and we have, you know, great parties down there. It's a, it's a very vibrant, different type of a city. Um, uh, and it's a little more challenging from our aspect because here, when I go to a casino or a large restaurant or whatever and approach them with coming into their facility on a Monday night, which is normally lighter for them, and I'm going to bring them a couple hundred people. We're going to, you know, $8,000 at the bar, put out some food, you know, bring some people in that'll eat, have dinner. It's a it's a relatively easy sell. We can leverage some advertising onto that. Down there, there are no off nights. It's everything is busy. So you go in, you say, "I want the room for the night." They go, "Good, give me five thousand, and you know we're in business." So it's been a little bit of uh, of an adjustment for us, but you know, slowly but surely, we're finding the people. And I think our goal eventually is to build that up to close to where we have it here, and then we'll we'll sell it because it is it is a lot of work running another market uh, from from a distant location. Now, you also, I, I saw one of my friends on Facebook, uh, you started a cigar club? Yeah, USA Man Cigar Club. We figured, you know, so we have a great partner with uh, Dean Parsons of Epic Cigars, and uh, he owns that brand, and he's part of the Xander Gray family in, in L.A., which is a huge cigar distribution outfit uh, internationally, actually. And uh, so we created this friendship and decided to, uh, you know, what better thing for, for guys than cigars? So we do a, a, a three-cigar monthly shipment to all of our club members. And if you sign up, you get a, you know, a free gift, whether it's a $50 ashtray or a lighter or something. And, uh, and they get an explanation of each cigar. And uh, it's been good. We just, we're just now getting our landing page together. So it's been pretty much word of mouth until now. But hopefully we'll get that off the ground in a big fashion soon. Now, where do you think your entrepreneurship came from? Because that's what this all is. This is survival. entrepreneurship. Survival that... skills. I had four daughters to feed. <laughs> they couldn't eat excuse. No, seriously. I mean, listen, I, I, I'm a competitor, right? And, when, you know, my, we didn't have four daughters by design. I had a daughter, Ashley, who was born in 1983. We tried to have more children. It didn't work out. My wife went on fertility drugs, and we had triplet daughters. So I was presented with a situation that, uh, you know, the kids can't eat excuses. You have to produce and you have to do it well. So I did whatever I could to, to make as much money as I could to support them. And then, uh, you know, when, when this came along, it seemed like the, the perfect confluence of paper printing, my journalism background, uh, the fact that I'm competitive. When I sign an ad deal or a chairman's club member, I feel like I scored a touchdown. I get the same burn in my belly. It's amazing. And I'm 65 and a half years old. Now, I, I, I don't want to stop this. I mean, this is what I'm going to do for, until I can't do it anymore. So, you know, that that's that's pretty much the story of, uh, of the magazine and, and how it goes so far. What's it like having triplets? You know, you always think, like, I, you know, I know people who've had twins, and it's like, you know, you're, you get, as you said, Fertility, that's the last thing you think. You yeah. want one more. I mean, is it, I mean, it's great because you have these daughters, but it must be a really, it must be harrowing. It must be like, well, oh my God, just anxiety. Like, what am I going to do? First of all, they offer you something called selective reduction, which means you don't have to have all the children. And we dismiss that uh, 
right off the top. So we, we knew we were going to have all three of them, and we knew that they were girls. Now, Alexandra, one of the triplets, um, she developed uh, a cancer in her tailbone as a baby. So you can, if you can imagine the stress of having three children, now two are manageable. You give one parent has each, right? That third one is like, it's like a juggling act. And then factor in the fact that we were at St. Christopher's Hospital weekly with her, treatments, staying overnight, surgeries. It was a very stressful time. And all, all I can say is, like, we would take life day by day, and uh, we did the best we could every day. We were praying for that school bus to come uh, when it was kindergarten time, I can tell you that. <laughs> we needed a break. But, they, you know, they've been great kids. Uh, Alexandra, the, the girl who was, was sick, has recovered, and she works for me along with Ashley. And then... Jamie and Taylor, the other two triplets, are nurses in Philadelphia, and they all live in Philly on Spring Garden Street. So I'm an empty nester for the first time, kind of liking that. Well, that's good. Now, the, now the, nowadays, Jersey Magazine, tell me what people can find in it. Where do you find your writers? Where do you find your stories? One of the things I'm most honored about is early on, some of the best writers in Philadelphia and, and New Jersey were uh, that and people that I didn't even know, like George Anastasia. I mean, I knew Stan Hockman and Bill Lyon a little bit from sports. But all these people were intrigued with the concept and wanted to write for us, and they would do it at a price that we could afford. So George Anastasia, the preeminent mob author probably in the world, is uh, we track our website hits, and he always gets the most hits uh, every every uh, quarter. We, we publish this magazine quarterly now. But, um, you know, and then and currently we've got, uh, you know, Dave Spadaro, the Eagles insider, just wrote the Nick Sirianni piece for us. Uh, Sam Carcitti was the Flyers beat writer for the Inquirer for years, just retired. He's doing some podcast work now, but he still goes to all the games and he, he writes for us. And, you know, we've got some really good young writers, Michael Bradley and Kurt Smith and Jan Apple and people that contribute regularly to the magazine and we're, we're very proud of it journalistically we think it's it's a good magazine and you know people uh, we, we print limited amount of copies now because that's just the way the trend of the industry we you see a magazine in front of you uh, we we print a limited amount that we can give to subscribers advertisers then hand out at our events kind of like a fancy business card but the magazine is for free digitally on the website if you go to jerseymanmagazine.com you get to read the magazine for free. And actually, from an advertiser standpoint, there's unlimited access to their ad now because the Internet is worldwide. So we get a lot of web hits, and people read the magazine online. And those that would still want to subscribe, we send it out to them, and it's been good. Now, what can people expect when they go to a Jersey Man event? You know, I know you, I know you have the pop-ups, and I know you have, you know, Parks Casino. I know you were just at Chickie's, I think, in South Philly. <coughs> right. um, what can people expect when they, when they go? Is it, you know, because... Networking, you know, can be scary sometimes. When yeah. I moved back, you know, all the people I went to high school with were the point. They weren't networking. They had their businesses, you know. Right. And you go, and you don't really know people. Luckily, because I've been in, in Hollywood, I know how to talk to people. But what can people expect when they go to one of your events? And and especially if they're a shy person or if yeah. they're not sure, what can they expect? Uh, it's a great question. Uh, number one, uh, the events are fun. There's no specific business agenda with the event. So, you know, there there's not going to be a speech by an accountant that is going to talk about a certain aspect of business that you may or may not be interested in. So 
when we come, it's really a, it's a monthly celebration. We do one major event a month and then a, one minor pop-up a month. But the big event is usually at a really nice place. They've got some pretty good food. And we've got people that really don't go to anything else in the area come to our events because it's such a laid-back atmosphere. Uh, from your standpoint, what you mentioned about people uh, being uh, a little afraid about going into a big room, number one, at the registration desks, they're, they're greeted by my family. My wife and my daughter, Ashley, greets them. We've got uh, Sang and Erica at our desk, too, that do a good job with that. So they're warmly greeted. Uh, we do a little homework before when guests are attending about who they would want to meet. So we'll walk them into the room many times and introduce them to somebody that's in a field that could benefit them. Uh, we've got such a good group that, uh, to be honest with you, most of the club members sell the club for us. I mean, it's just, the, you know, they're, there's nothing like a testimonial to sell somebody. You can go and, you know, you, you listen to me and you say, well, Ken's got an agenda. He wants me to join, right? But if you talk to a member, a paying member that says, listen, my, the, the first event I came to, I got like a year's worth of dues paid for the first meeting. So, so that, those types of testimonials are really important. We, and we publish the testimonials in every magazine, and they're effective. Well, seeing that, it is a networking group, but it's also more of a social group. That's the one thing. They're, they're, that's the, a lot of people, as you said, don't really focus on that. We're a social club where business happens. That's our tag. Exactly. So, yeah. now, now, let me ask you, as someone who's in the business of bringing people together, what do you like about networking? And then what do you not like about networking? Yeah, I, I mean, listen, I'm not a natural networker. I'm a little bit shy uh, personality, believe it or not. So it is not uh, something that comes naturally to me to walk into a room and, and meet a, a big number of people. It's probably something I wouldn't do on my own. I can tell you this from a, from a business standpoint, I truly believe that if you have a marketable product or service that benefits people, your success will be totally dictated by how many people you talk to about it. So from my standpoint, I had to meet people. I had to talk to them. I'm trying to get a magazine off the ground at a time when magazines are going out of business. I'm trying to start a networking group where there's already chambers and other fashions of net, you know, a late, late tip and BNI and all these other groups. So we had to differentiate ourselves uh, as something different. And to do that, we had to expose people to it. So I became, like I said, survival skills. I became a networker out of necessity. Now, you also do, are you still doing the podcast? Yeah, Mark Eckel and I do an Eagles podcast. Tell me about that, because, you know, first of all, people, it's the Eagles, and he, he played the Eagles. Yeah. You know, tell me about your podcast and why, what made you decide to start it. Well, you know, podcasts are, as you can see, since we're doing one, is, uh, they're an up-and-coming genre of communication. And, you know, uh, I've, I've known Mark over the years. Uh, he, he's another one of our writers, by the way. He covered the Eagles for many years for NJ.com and the Trenton Times. Really knows his stuff. Uh, very into football, very friendly guy. So, you know, Mark and I, just in our conversation, say, hey, listen, we, you know, we call each other on Monday to talk about football for an hour. So why don't we do a podcast? I mean, let's just record it, right? So we did. About, I think, three years ago, we started the, uh, we call it the Bird Brains with Ken and Mark. And uh, uh, it's, it's starting to gain traction. It's more of a fun fun thing. We The magazine sponsors it. So, um, but I, I think I do get some feedback from people that, especially now, since everybody's all hot about the Eagles, that uh, they like to tune in. We try to do it on the Monday after the game, if possible, depending on our schedule, maybe sometimes Tuesday. But, you know, it's fun. It's uh, fun to talk Eagles football, especially when they're playing well. 
Now, what's the future for you? What's the future for Jersey Man? Where would you like to see? I know the franchising, and of course, you want, I mean, that's like anything. You know, you, whatever you do, you want it to be yeah. be popular. But what? Where do you see Jersey Man in five years? You know, Steve, my emphasis is solely on uh, trying to keep my attention on how people can benefit from our brand. So I don't have a. Uh, I don't have an end game. People ask me all the time, what's your end game? My end game is today. I'm here talking to you about uh, our brand, and tonight I've got an honoree happy hour. We're going to you know, sit down with the honorees tonight and present them with some awards because the, the night of the event is so hectic that we want to give them some, some personal time. And I really, uh, if, I, if my, I can maintain my focus on how people can benefit from what we've created, then the end game's going to take care of itself. I'm going to work as long as I'm physically able to work, and uh, when I'm when I'm done, hopefully I'll have a, a vibrant business to hand off to two of my four daughters that are working in it, and uh, and, and we'll go from there. I don't, I really, I, I don't think about the end game because I don't want to. I'm having too much fun doing it day by day. One final question about the unmasking: What goes on at the unmasking? What is the event itself? I know it's a ball, and I know it's—is it—is it a black tie? No, it's business casual. Some people get dressed up, some don't. Um, it's a mixer, so there isn't a, isn't a sit-down dinner. Ballroom at the Bend does a great job with food stations and the food, especially the VIP area, is extraordinarily good. And there's an open bar, for, I believe, from six to ten p.m. and then. Some of the more adventuresome young ones go out afterwards. I, I head for home right away. But um, it, it's a fun night, and we do a short presentation. Our presentation lasts about 20 minutes, so we'll start a couple minutes before 8, and we'll be done probably by Eagles kickoff and hand out the awards. And we've got a nice silent auction table with some pretty interesting stuff. And, again, a portion of every ticket that we sell and a huge portion of a lot of the silent auctions, all that money goes to those six deserving charities. And again, if you want to meet Dick Vermeil and you're interested in, in coming out to a great party, uh, tell the people how to get a hold of me. Well, you tell me. How can the people get a hold of you? Yeah, Ken at jerseymanmagazine.com is the best way to send me an email. Uh, my cell number is 856-912-4007. Call me or send me a text. and. We'll be happy to send you information out about uh, how you can attend this special night. Cool. Well, I thank you for coming by, Ken. Uh, people, seriously, follow up. Go to Jersey. Go, go online. Read the magazine. Uh, Sirianni's on the cover. You know, you got to love that guy. I mean, sure. it's so funny. And, you know, what I remember, I don't dislike Philly sports media. I mean, I was very good friends with Big Daddy Grand. Bless his soul. Yeah. He was one of me. When I did comedy, he was one of the first people that ever gave me a break. And his show, I used to call into his show from L.A. And he was always positive. But I remember when Sirianni got hired, everyone was bitching because he brought up the flower. And it's like the guy is so perfect for yeah. Philly because he's just got that oomph. Yeah. I, I. So in today's football, there's the trend is for these owners who want to keep control of the franchise is to hire an up-and-comer. You're not going to see a Bill Parcells or a John Gruden or any more that, okay, you want to be my coach, we'll give you the franchise. That's not going to happen anymore. So they hire these up-and-comers like Sirianni, who came highly recommended by Frank Reich, who was really admired by the Eagles staff. And I was on the fence. I was on the fence about the Doug Peterson hire, and I was wrong about that. So I didn't know enough about this guy. But when you get to know him, find out he's a coach's son. He comes from a great family. His work ethic is unbelievable. And he's just rallied the troops around into this cohesive unit. And uh, 
he's a good guy and a great hire for the Eagles. I think he's a perfect fit here. So people Google Jersey Man magazine and read the article about Nick. Subscribe to it. It comes it's quarterly. So check that out and get in touch with Ken. And also people, you can go to um, actually you can go to Cooper Talk, the CoopTank.podbean.com. Find all of my past episodes. Uh, go to the CooperTalk.net. I've done over 930 entertainment interviews. You can check that out. And if you want to get interviewed for your business, for your social media, for your you know your website or for anything. We can set it up. I've done a ton of interviews. I've interviewed everyone from Stephen Van Zandt to David Duchovny to Rock and Roll Hall of Famers. So come in. We'll set up an interview. You post it. You'll get great results. And that's about it. So until next time, I'm Steve Cooper. This is the Coop Tank, and you guys have a great day. 